everyone. Welcome to meeting number 16 of the M2 D2 series. Um, today, we are excited to have uh, Derek with us. He will be talking about um, how to expose the limitation of molecular modeling, uh, molecular machine learning using Nativity Clift. Um, so a bit about Derek before we start. Um, Derek Van Tiburg is a PhD candidate in the, molecular, in the molecular machine learning group at the Endoven University of Technology. He primarily works on applying graph neural network for drug discovery. He is, by leveraging his academic background in both biomedical sciences and bioinformatics, he works on bridging the gap between computational method and preclinical experiment. Thank you, Derek, for accepting our invitation and for taking the time to present this. Um, without further ado, the floor is yours. Thank you again. Thanks for the uh, lovely introduction. So uh, let's start right away. So um, as you know, uh, drugs are important. Uh, modern medicine is truly uh, centered around drugs and uh, for finding new ones, uh, new and effective drugs is, is pretty crucial. Um, however, as you also know, molecules are pretty complex and uh, human intuition about molecules has its limits. After all, we are just uh, apes with iPhones. Uh, so we can benefit a lot by leveraging the power of machine learning for help us, helping us understand molecules uh, better. So examples for leveraging machine learning to accelerate drug discovery are, for example, uh, de novo design, where models generate new molecular structures uh, from scratch, or molecular property prediction, where you're predicting something about the molecule, uh, for example, uh, bioactivity of a molecule on a specific drug target, something that I'm very interested about. Um, and molecular property prediction is, is used across the whole spectrum of early drug discovery. Um, so it, it's really, really important. Um, and uh, at, at the heart of chemistry lies this idea that uh, molecular structure determines its chemical properties. And a, a natural extension of this idea is the principle of similarity, uh, where similar compounds have similar properties. Um, and this, this, this concept of, of, of uh, similarity is really the backbone principle of a lot of molecular property prediction. Um, and well, it, it kind of works. This principle uh, is not bulletproof. So it, it doesn't always hold. So in some cases, very slight structural differences uh, can cause drastic changes in complex molecular uh, properties like bioactivity, for example. So uh, what you're looking at right now uh, are two molecules that are almost identical. The, uh, they only differ by one carbon atom. Uh, and still the bioactivity of one of these molecules uh, is a lot uh, higher than the other one. Uh, and this big change in the structure uh, activity landscape is called uh, an activity clip. Um, so we have these small structural changes that cause huge changes in bioactivity. Uh, and they can be very annoying, especially during lead optimization, for example. So uh, here, uh, you don't really want to introduce big changes in bioactivity when you're optimizing a molecule. But on the other hand, uh, these very specific changes are, are actually a goldmine uh, of information on the structure activity relationship of a molecule. And you, you could say that a model that, that can predict the changes in bioactivity on these structural alterations very well, um, can be seen as a model uh, that also 
models to structure get the relationship very well. Um, so this means that uh, activity glyph can can be glyphs can be seen as a kind of a proxy of understanding this relationship. Um, however, uh, machine learning models they uh, they kind of tend to break down in the presence of activity glyph. They really struggle uh, quote unquote understanding that. Um, but it is it's it's unknown which strategies um, are best for dealing with them. So um, you might ask, uh, is this uh, actually a problem? Well, uh, yes. Um, activity glyphs, they, they pop up everywhere, um, really. So if you, for example, look at a few uh, commonly used screening libraries for molecular property prediction, uh, there's a very high number of molecules that are very similar in structure. So in some libraries uh, with, with curated drug-like compounds like Adamant Premium, for example, uh, you can see that almost half of the molecules in there uh, have at least one or more look-alike molecule. So it, it is a, a real problem, and these activity cliffs, they, uh, they, are, uh, they are everywhere. Um, but yeah, well, now we know that, that uh, models, they struggle with, with modeling activity cliffs, um, and we also know that this is actually a real problem, um, but we don't know what the best practices are uh, for dealing with the problem. So naturally, the following question arises. Um, why do models break down and where? And which machine learning approaches work best for handling data with activity? So to answer this question, um, we did the following. Uh, we gathered and curated uh, a lot of typical drug discovery data sets. Uh, we then determined activity clips. Uh, and we explored a wide range of machine learning strategies um, including classical machine learning uh, uh, strategies and, uh, and deep learning models, uh, working on graphs, for example. Um, and we evaluate all these approaches uh, on bioactivity predictions on uh, activity clip molecules. So starting, of course, uh, with the data. So we, we collected and curated bioactivity data from Campbell. Uh, I'm pretty sure most of you are familiar with Camel. It's a big database of, uh, of, uh, of compounds. Um, uh, and we collected data for a comprehensive set of drug targets. So in total, we, we uh, collected data for 30 uh, relevant drug targets. And we only use data with bioactivity annotated by KI or EC50 uh, because well, these are arguably the most robust measures of bioactivity. Um, and in the, uh, in the end, we, we cover almost 50K molecules. Um, and, and the aim of this uh, set of, of data sets is to mimic typical drug discovery data sets with different sizes, different targets, ranging for, from, from kinases to GPCRs to nuclear receptors, for example, really mimicking uh, the typical scenarios. Um, but before we can, can do anything, really, um, we need to, to have a proper definition of these activity clips. So in the literature, they are often defined as uh, pairs of structurally similar molecules that exhibit a large difference in their biological activity. Uh, and this is a, a rather vague, vague concept, because uh, what even is structural similarity? And when are two molecules similar in structure? Um, and then what is a large difference in bioactivity? Um, so um, this, this second um, 
this this second criteria is actually the most easiest to answer, I would say. Um, so the, the literature tells us that somewhere between a 10x and a 100x difference can be considered as a, a large difference. Um, and well, a 10x difference is already uh, quite relevant pharmacologically. So uh, we just went with that. So that was a pretty uh, easy thing to answer. But then comes the uh, this similarity. And similarity is a, a lot more difficult to precisely define because there are, are like, there are many ways of determining structural similarity and different methods of determining structure, uh, structural similarity. They also result in different activity clips, of course. So it's, it's also pretty crucial to, to get this right. Um, but also we, we know that there is no one set way of doing this. So we, we try to use a well-rounded approach uh, that looks at similarity from a few different aims. So we use the substructure similarity, uh, then a kind of similarity that, that looks at the scaffold and a smiles-based similarity. Uh, so starting with the first one, um, a substructure similarity. Uh, this is a very general uh, similarity metric that is used all over the place. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that a lot of uh, people are familiar with, uh, with this, the Tanimoto similarity. Um, so what you do to uh, compute this is first you vectorize a molecule uh, into a binary vector, for example, using extended connectivity fingerprints. Um, and then you find the similarity between two of these bit vectors by calculating the, the intersection of a union of these two sets. Uh, and then you have a, a general um, substructure similarity. Then secondly, we used a slightly different approach that uh, specifically detects similarity between scaffolds. So here we compute an atomic scaffold uh, from a molecule. And then we calculate the Tanimoto similarity between atomic scaffolds. Uh, and finally, um, uh, we use a slightly different kind of, uh, of similarity uh, based on smile string. So as you might know, uh, it is possible to represent uh, a molecular structure as strings, as uh, smile strings. And you can uh, then calculate the added distance, which is also known as the Levenstein distance between two of these smile strings. So what you're doing here is uh, you're measuring how many edits uh, are required to end up uh, from, to go from one string to the other. Um, and you can, can use this kind of, kind of distance uh, measure to, to capture insertions, deletions, and translocations of compound fragments, which is something that's not very well captured using the other two approaches. Um, hi, Derek. Hi. Um, did you try to use uh, a measure of similarity that account for the 3D structure of the, the molecule? Uh, no, no, not really. No. Okay. And don't you think like it's kind of critical in understanding uh, activity clip or just because of the limitation? Uh, yeah. Um, I think it, it is important, um, but tree structure is also something that's pretty um, difficult to, to deal with in some machine learning strategies. Um, so because we're comparing a lot of different approaches, 
we thought that, well, it's probably not the easiest uh, route to go with the 3D similarity as well, but I, I agree, it's, it's, it's quite important. Um, and uh, it could be a nice addition actually to, uh, to these three methods. Okay, thanks. And there's a few more questions from Dom and Oscar. Uh, yeah. Hello, Derek. Um, so Hi. I had a question very similar to this uh, about the 3D structure. Um, so I would like to know for, for the activity cliff, is this something like that is really related um, in your opinion to the molecular graph, which is an incomplete representation? Like when, when we have two molecules that have a high activity cliff, um, is it typical that their 3D structure or their electronic densities vary a lot? Or uh, usually they are also similar in these terms, but um, there we still observe an activity cliff. Yeah, so there's no straight answer for this. So uh, in some cases, yes, there are also some papers that try to, to quantify this and they really look at, uh, at, at this 3D structure or the electron density even, uh, but this isn't always the case. So it's pretty difficult to, uh, to put your finger on what exactly causes these cliffs uh, sometimes, uh, but it could indeed be similarity between uh, electron density, yes. Okay, and uh, if you have two molecules that exhibit an activity cliff against a specific target, um, mm -hmm. does that tell us anything about an activity cliff against another target? Or uh, not really, is, is the activity cliff target specific? Yes, it is target specific. So maybe there are some, some more general uh, rules here, but um, yeah, I would say it, it, it really depends on the target. Derek, I have a couple of questions, very quick uh, questions. The first one is, have you tried to use molecular, match molecular pairs to de define an activity cliff? No, and we haven't. I, I, I know it's uh, some, uh, some papers uh, have taken that approach, but we didn't. Um, yeah, so no, uh, we haven't <laughs> <Okay>. tried. <laughs> and the second question, the second question, maybe you will uh, talk more later, but it's about how you, how you make sure that your activity data is high quality enough to to say that your activity cliff is not an experimental error and it's a real activity cliff? Yeah, yeah. So th that's that's something that uh, uh, keeps coming back, of course, with all computational uh, things you do. Uh, so we we got our data from Campbell, and uh, maybe you know there is always a bit of junk in there. Um, so we try to filter out uh, some of it. But uh, I mean, it's not perfect. Uh, I know that. Uh, but also, um, if you start to remove everything, of course, then you have no data left. So it's always uh, like a difficult balance, uh, balance to uh, to maintain here. But but yeah, um, there is probably some uh, some junk in there. That's just the reality of uh, of dealing with public data. <laughs> okay. Thanks, um, to Oscar's point, don't you think that maybe taking into account uh, the the because like in some in some of these, then I said we have some molecules that have been measured multiple times, and the, you have kind of the experimental error. So maybe taking into account the experimental error of every experiment in defining the activity instead of saying 10s the activity, we can say 10s like the standard 
experimental error that we observe like over this data set or something like that? Yeah, so we use that to filter out uh, a lot of data from uh, uh, from Campbell. So for not for all cases, but for some cases, there are multiple data points available. And then uh, I, I think we said like, oh, if, if, if there's more than uh, one log unit uh, of standard deviation, we kick them out. Uh, don't remember exactly uh, what rule we used there, but we we use the variation to uh, to filter out uh, some stuff from the data. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Okay. So um, to to wrap up these three different uh, approaches of similarity, uh, we come to uh, this definition. So uh, we define activity cliff as having at least a ten x difference in bioactivity and a ninety percent similarity at at least one of these three similarity metrics. Uh, and we use this, this kind of approach because they all capture slightly different things. So if you look at this example over here, uh, you can see some uh, activity clips that are specific to one of uh, three of these similarity metrics. And they all kind of capture different elements of similarity. Um, so um, now that we, we've defined activity clips, we can uh, compute them on our data. Uh, so that's what we did. We determined activity cliffs on our data. Um, and of course, the nature of activity cliff is always pairwise. Uh, and because these cliffs occur, occur in a pairwise fashion, it makes comparison to predictions on non-cliff molecules a bit complicated. Uh, so what we did is we defined molecules that, uh, that exhibit any cliffs as an activity cliff compound. Uh, and we used that uh, information to, to split our data set uh, where we distribute based on the structure and their, uh, their, it being an activity cliff compound. And then you end up with 30 split data sets ranging from something like 3,000 training molecules to uh, 600 odd uh, training molecules. And just like the screening libraries I showed in the very beginning, you can see that some data sets, they uh, contain a substantial number of, uh, of, of uh, cliff molecules. So, okay, as a, as a reminder, the, the question we want to have answered is, which machine learning approaches uh, are best for dealing uh, with data that contain activity clips? Um, so, uh, and again, we are going to compare uh, quote unquote old school methods and uh, some deep learning uh, methods. Uh, and, and one of the hypotheses of using uh, deep learning approaches is that they you know, might be able to detect cliffs uh, better because they can learn more complex relationships, right? Uh, but before I get ahead uh, of myself, uh, let's start with some of these uh, classical methods first. Um, Derek, so, sorry yeah. to interrupt here, but before you dive into the modeling, uh, I, I didn't understand the splitting strategy here. So for a given target, uh, you take 80% uh, of the data that is not an activity cliff, just the standard training data for this. And then of the data that you do have activity cliffs, you split them together as pairs or you split them separately? So um, splitting is actually, uh, it, it, it's really difficult to have a good distribution uh, of cliffs between train and test uh, because uh, a lot of these data sets they contain 
like compound series. Uh, so a compound can have a cliff with a lot of different other compounds. So uh, having them uh, like separated as pairs is it's it's really impossible to do. Um, so what we do what we did is we uh, use stratified splitting to uh, make sure that uh, there are activity cliff compounds both in, in both the train and the test set, but uh, we we weren't able to make sure that they are paired because yeah that that wasn't possible actually to uh, to to do that. Um, and did you do anything to separate the train and test via the um, sort of diversity or scaffold or something like this? Because one of the biggest challenges with ML on some of these things, right, is that you end up basically memorizing the, uh, you know, the training data and your test data is sort of irrelevant if you've sort of split randomly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we, we first clustered our data into, uh, I think we use scaffold clustering. Uh, I'm not, I can't remember it properly, to be honest. Uh, but we clustered our data. Um, and then for every cluster, we did stratified sampling to distribute the uh, clips over train and test. Okay. So that, that makes sure that you, uh, you are, you're dealing with this uh, scaffold problem that you mentioned. Okay, um, then the, uh, the, the modeling. So um, these, these uh, machine learning uh, typically operates on uh, molecular descriptors, at least the, the more old school, uh, quote unquote, old school methods. Um, and there are, there are two main types of fingerprints or, or of uh, descriptors, uh, binary fingerprints uh, and classical descriptors. So we export four commonly used uh, uh, descriptors that are based on distinctly different approaches. So two binary fingerprint approaches we use were ECFPs. So these are uh, radial substructures um, and MACs, which, are, which encode predetermined fragments. Uh, and then we also use WIM descriptors, which describe the 3D shape and size of the molecule and uh, just regular old physical chemical properties like the weight, log P, uh, number of hydrogen bond donors and acceptors, et cetera. Um, and coupled to these four descriptors, we use uh, commonly uh, used and well-respected machine learning algorithms uh, for molecular property prediction. Uh, so we use random forest, uh, gradient boosting, support vector machine, and uh, very simple KNN. Uh, and to optimize these, uh, the high parameters of these models, uh, we used five-fold cross-validation and grid search. Um, so using this combination of, of uh, common machine learning strategies, we predicted the bioactivity on activity cliff compounds in uh, our 30 data sets, uh, which yields uh, almost 500 different models um, to analyze. Uh, and this resulted in the following. So uh, on the y-axis here, you can see the uh, RMSC on uh, activity clip compounds. So this is the prediction error of the log 10 bioactivity uh, on activity clip compounds. Uh, and what, what, comes, what becomes obvious immediately is that uh, these, these binary fingerprints, so the ECFP and the MAX, they really outperform the other descriptors. Uh, 
you see WIM is the worst, uh, physical chemical properties are a bit better, but still uh, worse than the, the binary fingerprints. Uh, and this, this pattern and, and order uh, of descriptors is the same for all algorithms. And this tells us that the descriptors are uh, doing most of the work here. Um, and um, if we do a global ranking based on the activity cliff uh, RMSE, we see a similar pattern emerging. So what you're looking at right here is a PCA, um, but it's scaled between the best and worst performance for every method. So uh, we added the column containing the best and worst performance for every method, and then we did the PCA. And then you will end up with something like this, which is a scaled PCA that um, also contains kind of semi-quantitative information about your method performance. So you still uh, see which one uh, does worse than the other one. Um, and you see a, a very similar pattern uh, emerging over here. So methods, they, they are uh, clustered by descriptor uh, and not by algorithm. Um, and the best one is a support vector machine with ECFPs and the, the, the worst ones are uh, well, anything using WIM uh, really. Um, but of course, uh, looking at the performance of the uh, cliff compounds only is, is, is just part of the picture, right? Uh, and we wanna know how well um, is, is the performance of cliff compounds compared to the overall performance. So by comparing uh, that, the, the performance on cliff compounds and uh, overall performance shows that they are uh, highly correlated. So models, they, they are slightly worse at predicting uh, bioactivity on cliff compounds, but Models with a good overall performance, they also indicate overall better performance on cliff compounds. Um, but there are some, some outliers here. Um, okay. Uh, so so what, about, what about deep learning? Uh, so I hypothesized a while back that maybe these deep learning methods, they are a bit better at capturing these activity clips because they can also capture uh, more complex uh, relationships in the data. So what we did is we explored two main uh, approaches, uh, deep learning models based on graphs, um, molecular graphs, and models based on strings, on small strings. So starting with, uh, with molecular graphs, like, uh, unlike, for example, images, molecules, they are quite difficult objects to uh, digitalize. Uh, they, they all have different sizes and shapes. Um, which is uh, quite uh, quite difficult to deal with. And one way to solve this problem is by representing molecule as a, as a graph or as a network. Uh, and here nodes uh, in the network represent atoms and edges in this network, they represent bonds. Um, and every element in this graph, uh, so both the nodes and the edges, um, they can have feature vectors that describe the properties. So uh, for example, Atoms, they can be encoded by their atom type, number of bonds, hybridization, et cetera. Um, and bonds, they can be described, for example, by their bond type or stereo configuration. Um, and to, to learn from these graph structure, uh, from this graph structure data, you need a specific type of deep learning algorithm called graph neural networks. Um, and there are many, well, many flavors of uh, graph neural networks, but they all share uh, a similar idea that information from neighboring nodes in this network is, is shared between nodes in a stepwise manner. Um, 
And graph networks have been proven uh, very effective for some molecular prediction tasks, especially for quantum mechanics. Uh, there's quite some hype around them, as you might have noticed. Um, uh, and this does result in a uh, kind of a wild growth of algorithms. So what we did is we took three very uh, popular algorithms uh, from seminal papers and one uh, method that, it's, that has state-of-the-art performance for molecular property prediction. Uh, and they all take a slightly different approach. Um, so the message passing uh, non-network, they uh, passes information uh, from neighboring nodes by transforming it with the learnable uh, learnable function. And then uh, graph attention uh, networks gets, uh, instead of a message passed across edges, this algorithm uh, learns attention coefficients that determine the importance of features. Um, and then you have uh, graph convolutional networks, which is maybe the first big um, uh, GNN uh, architecture, and it aggregates information from neighboring nodes using a convolution. And then finally, the uh, attentive fingerprint uh, method uses attention mechanisms at both the atom and the molecule level. Um, and we used uh, Bayesian optimization for all of these, uh, these approaches. Uh, to optimize the hyperparameters. Um, okay. Um, so besides graph-based approaches, we also explored string-based approaches, which are especially popular for generative models, uh, but they can also perform molecular property prediction. Uh, so uh, as you probably know, uh, you can represent a molecule as a character string by linearizing it. Um, and then you can one not encode this uh, sequence of characters. Um, and there are a few different deep learning architectures that can learn from these, uh, these sequences. And two popular algorithms that have been used uh, before on molecules are CNNs, convolutional neural networks, and LSTMs, non short term memory. Uh, and CNNs are usually used for images, of course, uh, but you can use the, the one dimensional variant uh, to learn from sequential data. Um, and a recent study leveraged this algorithm uh, on small strings uh, with great success. Um, and then you have the LSTMs, and they uh, have been highly successful for sequence data and have also been used for uh, molecule generation. Um, and LSTMs that lend themselves very well for easy pre training as well. So that's also something we did. We uh, pre trained uh, all LSTMs. LSTM models uh, using mixed token prediction. And then we use uh, fine tuning to tune this pre trained network on the specific data set. So um, we use these, uh, these, right. these commonly. One question before you, you move yeah, on. Sure. So um, the graph based method, you are not using pre trained uh, representation, right? You actually yes, train yes. them. Okay. And then the smile one you are using pre-training. Is there any reason why you, you didn't kind of use Bayesian optimization for, for those as well? Um, so the the reason so, so there are two questions here, right? Uh, why didn't you use pre-training for GNNs? And then uh, um, why didn't you use Bayesian optimization for the other ones, right? So yeah, but... the first question, um, we did try it. Uh, but it, it didn't seem to, to help very much. 
So a lot of these pre-training strategies for GNMs, they are not very well established. Uh, um, and some of them, well, they're just not suitable uh, for molecules, uh, at least not very well. So we, we played around with, uh, with that for, for a bit, uh, but we didn't see real improvements. So we, uh, we didn't use that. Um, and for the, uh, for the sequence-based approach, uh, we didn't use base optimization because we uh, we used uh, the high parameters from uh, these specific papers. That uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So um, that brings us to 180 deep learning models uh, on activity cliff uh, performance. So to compare uh, between these, these classical uh, methods and the deep learning methods, uh, we included the best classical method, which was the support vector machine using ECF, which you can see that uh, on the, the bottom right in this box plot. Uh, and what becomes immediately obvious is that the simple descriptor-based uh, method, they really outperform all the deep uh, learning-based methods. Um, and besides, uh, the, the graph attention method performed so poor, yeah, well, it just performed very badly uh, uh, compared to the other deep learning based methods, which all kind of uh, performed in the same, uh, in the same ballpark. Uh, but, but all of these, these deep learning methods, they had a very large standard deviation between data sets as well. Um, and for, for a final comparison, we also added a simple neural network that just uses ECFP fingerprints, um, which is on, on the right. Um, and it, it really uh, highlights the, the power of using this, uh, these descriptors because it outperformed all the other uh, neural network-based approaches. Derek, um, I have a question. Uh, yeah, sure. I have a question on the pre-training that you were doing for the sequence-based model. So were you only mm -hmm. using the molecule from your training set or were you using another corpus of molecules to do that? We were using uh, all of the molecules from the training set to, uh, to do uh, next token prediction. Thanks. Okay. So, um, um, uh, I also want to, if you can remind me how many data points there are in each of the data set that you tried for activity cliff. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, that really depends on the data set. So some data sets, they almost have 3000 training samples and some only have uh, something like 600, 700. So it, 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 it ranges quite a bit. Okay. Very quite. And, and did you observe that uh, either like the deep learning or uh, standard machine learning model um, suffer more from the problems of activity cliff uh, when you have smaller data sets than when you have larger data sets? Uh, good question. Uh, if you don't, I, I have a slide on that actually. So if you don't mind, uh, I will answer that question in, uh, in a few minutes. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, you can continue the presentation then. Okay. Um, so um, we have the box plot, and then we also did a global comparison uh, of these methods using the same uh, PCA approach. So again, uh, this PCA is scaled between best and worst uh, 
and it shows very similar picture to the box plot. Uh, and by the way, we left out the results from the graph attention uh, network because it it was just the worst across the board. Um, and it skewed the results of this this plot uh, immensely. So we we got rid of that to uh, make this plot a bit more uh, interpretable. Um, and what you see over here is again these these uh, descriptive based methods. They are just they are just the best, uh, no doubt about it. Um, then you have these smiles uh, based approaches, these sequence based approaches. Uh, they are slightly better than uh, most of the graph based approaches. Um, uh, so yeah. But but then again, um, only looking at the model performance on activity cliff compounds is just part of the story, of course. So uh, we also checked its relationship with the overall prediction error. And here a similar picture, uh, the classical descriptor uh, the based approaches emerges. So models they tend to, to struggle a bit more on activity cliff compounds, uh, but the uh, error on activity cliff compounds and overall error is still highly correlated. Uh, and again, we see a lot of outlier cases here. So we, of course, were wondering like, if, if there are some clear explanations for uh, cliffs being more difficult. Um, so one of the first thing that, that came to mind is uh, maybe it's due to the drug target. So we checked if it, if it, if it was, uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So there are no clear uh, trends visible here that points towards uh, this direction. And then we also thought about the data set size. Um, so we figured that data set size might influence the performance on activity clips quite a bit, um, but that also didn't seem to be the case. So we do see a trend here that, uh, especially the deep learning uh, methods, they experience a lot more variance between data sets that are smaller. Um, but it, this didn't prove to be statistically significant. Um, so yeah, it doesn't seem to be uh, the, 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 re the reason why, uh, actually. So we're still a bit in the dark here. Uh, so after evaluating almost 700 different models on activity clips, uh, we now know a lot more about the behavior of models in the presence of activity clip. But the question still remains, like, which machine learning strategies uh, are the best for dealing with activity clip? And the answer is, uh, it depends. Uh, <laughs> so in many cases, there's actually uh, quite a high correlation between the performance on activity cliff compounds and the overall performance. But in some cases, this just isn't the case. So if you look at the global picture, uh, you can see that while correlation is a pretty good uh, indication, there's a lot of case-by-case -case variation here. Uh, and this variation is, is not exclusive to, uh, to poorer models. But we also notice that it, it happens with the very well-performing machine learning strategies. So two models, they, they might have a similar overall performance um, while having large differences in performance on activity clips. Uh, so this means that it's probably a good idea to test if your model uh, performs well on activity clips uh, specifically. Uh, so this brings us uh, to the conclusion. So we saw that deep learning methods, they do not necessarily hold up yet. Uh, against the simpler machine learning methods uh, for uh, drug discovery. Um, 
and the model performance on activity clip compounds resulted to be highly data set dependent. So what does this mean? Um, so first of all, um, we need to, to develop more efficient deep learning uh, models that can overcome this uh, inherent limitation of truth discovery. Uh, for example, dealing with with, with uh, small data sets. But this is not related to activity clips per se. Um, important nonetheless. Uh, secondly, to get better models, it's probably a good idea to focus on the ability of your model to capture the structure activity discontinuities like activity clips better. Um, and finally, we, we notice a big case by case difference uh, in a model's ability to deal with activity clips. So it's a good idea to start measuring a model's performance on activity clip molecules. Uh, so especially when you are trying to deploy uh, a model for prospective applications, this is uh, important knowledge to have. And to facilitate this last point, uh, we developed a, a tool to, uh, to measure a model's performance in the presence of activity clips. And it's called uh, Molecule Activity Clip Estimation, or Molecule ACE uh, for short. Um, and using this tool, you can systematically benchmark uh, the performance of a model on activity clip compounds. And you can compare it with, with these well-established methods that we, uh, we evaluated. Um, you can also use it to evaluate uh, the, the chosen models on a new data set that's not included in our benchmark. And you can use it to uh, further expand the definition of activity clips based on specific use cases. So uh, while we provide a what we think is a pretty general uh, way of looking at activity clips, it's probably not, not perfect uh, and there might be something's missing. So uh, you, you could expand this definition as well for your own use. Uh, and you can get this tool uh, on GitHub for free uh, with this link over here. Um, and finally, if you are interested in uh, our study on activity clips, uh, you can find our uh, preprint on the uh, camera archives. So that brings me to the end of my talk. Um, I would like to thank you for the uh, for the attention and would like to thank the organizers for the opportunity to, uh, to present here. It's, uh, pretty cool. Um, our research, uh, well, uh, I would especially like to thank the, uh, the co-authors of this uh, research as well. Uh, so feel free to, uh, to ask any questions. Thank you. Um, thank you, Derek, for the, for the great presentation. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, there's already a lineup of people want to, want to ask questions. Just, just unmute yourself and go by order of, of your hands. Maybe you can start with John. He's the top on, on my screen. Uh, so. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Derek. Uh, this is really important research. Um, you know, as, as somebody who, who's doing this in a sort of, uh, you know, pharma capacity, this is obviously something that I care a lot about. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important that you put together this, this uh, data set. Um, a couple of your results, I think, are very much not surprising, which is good, right? I think that's the point, mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is that one <laughs> yeah. is that... Um, ECFPs on like an SVM or, or, or some, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, simple classical machine learning model, given a certain split methodology that, that you've used here can perform almost perfectly, but they're, you know, sort of useless in a pharma application because they can't generalize, but they're helpful for establishing a baseline here. 
So that's, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that, you know, I think that the, um, uh, the sort of deep learning methods that you've been using, you know, it, it's, they're, they're not expected to perform quite as well as like an ECFP on, on, um, uh, using something like an uh, SVM uh, based on the sort of data limitations that you have. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess, <laughs> you know, my question is, um, I don't know, have, have you set up something to design a situation where you would expect the deep learning methods to perform better? This is where, you know, I saw in your paper, you use like mm -hmm. a gin with certain pre-training, but you know, these, these deep neural networks are basically, you know, especially the graph ones are basically learning a worse ECFP if you have a small data set. Um, yeah, yeah. And the consequence of this, of course, being that it's also not just a change in the molecule graph, but where the change is uh, given mm -hmm. a structure that's important. And, and I know this experiment wasn't designed to, to test that, but, you know, do you have any thoughts on, you know, how you could extend that or, or how these deep neural networks might be able to, to perform better yeah. given structural information? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a pretty pessimistic uh, view of uh, of deep learning <laughs> approach, I would say. Um, and the main reason is that uh, we are kind of limited to these public data sets. So, if you uh, have the same situation in a pharma setting and you are able to screen a lot more molecules and uh, curate a, a substantial data set uh, with with a lot less noise in it. I would assume that these uh, deep learning methods they uh, they would would just perform way better, um, but yeah, that's that's not the reality of uh, of uh, dealing with uh, with data that's out there, fortunately. Um, but 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 still, this is not the the first time this uh, this discrepancy between, uh, for example, GNNs and uh, random forest or any other simple has been uh, discussed. So there are also a few papers that uh, kind of point out this, the same problem. Uh, and that's that, that well, for some tasks like quantum mechanics and stuff, GNNs, they just work really, really well. But for bioactivity prediction, uh, they're not uh, very capable yet. So there are also uh, some gaps in, uh, in, on the algorithmic side and how we, we deal with the data. Uh, that that need to be uh, to be filled here to uh, to close this gap. Yeah, uh, thanks. I I'm just going to plug again for the people on this because this is a, a really interesting you know research group that you know again I think there's a fundamental challenge with deep you know learning and bioactivity data like you said for quantum uh, you know simulation it it's been very very successful but bioactivity data it's not just what but where and that's rarely if ever captured appropriately in in some of these graph-based methods but completely unrelated to the activity cliffs which are still a huge problem good thank you john uh Pascal? hey Derek, again thank you very much for the for the talk it was really interesting and my question is more about what you gain from this research and it's uh what do you think? So based on the design on the descriptors you use and the neural networks you use, what do you think it's missing to really perform well in activity click prediction? Um, yeah, to be to be very honest with you, um, I I can't really pinpoint to a specific reason 
why uh, why some methods struggle a lot with certificates. So one of the reasons might be the data, and another part could be the algorithm that just isn't able to capture uh, this. But but what really struck me was that it also really depends um, on the data set. So for for some uh, cases, uh, these very well performing uh, strategies like support factor machine with ECFPs or or another uh, similar method uh, performed really poorly on a technical as well. On other data sets, they did quite well. So I think uh, the data is is uh, really what what makes the, the most difference uh, here. Um, I'm yeah. talking about the data. Did you see any correlation or did you see is that one of the strategies you use to define uh, similarities is correlated to better performance or, or worse performance? Uh, no, I, I no, I don't think I did. Um, so, so we also didn't. Uh, so we had this definition based on these three types of similarity, right? Uh, we just stuck with that. We didn't. Uh, to at, look, we didn't look at uh, the separate ones uh, separately. So uh, I, I'm not really sure if one of them will be way better than uh, another approach. Uh, okay. I, I, I guess That's not, it. to be honest. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Said Sebastian. Nice talk. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on is, is there a relationship between a model's ability and also a molecular representation ability to produce a sparse model and, and its ability to capture activity cliff? Is that some, yeah, just curious to get your thoughts on that. So, sorry, can you, uh, your question wasn't completely clear to me. Uh, yeah, my question is, is there a relationship between a, a model's ability to be sparse and its ability to capture activity cliff? Um, what exactly do you mean with sparse? I mean, um, like sparsity in, in terms of, um, I don't know, like L1 regularization, or there's many ways to produce sparse models um as opposed to a dance model uh if if that's an area you're familiar with uh, uh no no sorry uh, okay that's fine thanks yeah maybe i'm just being stupid here but uh... <laughs> cool as you uh hi there uh hi derek uh so uh I remember like you had compared a uh, data set size with a uh, model uh, performance, right? Uh, but like, do you think this could also be uh, like an engineering uh, uh, issue for instance, like uh, earlier work with uh, vision transformer, right? Uh, uh, what turns out is uh, you can't really train vision transformers well with traditional methods, right? Uh, they don't work with, let's say SGD or RMS prop. What, what you need is like, uh, Adam or like a very fine-tuned uh, learning rate. So uh, do you think it's the mm -hmm. same for like uh, molecules as well? Like 
do we need like clever training strategies or do we lack something in like the model architecture itself yeah so this this could be a, a very important point actually so um for example, for the uh, the, the, the graph-based methods we use based optimization, but we didn't optimize it till infinity because we, we have like 30 data sets and, and four different models. So we just don't have to compute to to find the app. Well, of course, there is no absolute optimal uh, model, but to, to optimize it really, really well. So I think there's actually a lot to gain there. But uh, but but still, like like, you can make a support vector machine in five minutes. You can train it in, in, in 30 seconds. Uh, if you compare that with having to optimize a GNN for a few days, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's also <laughs> quite a gap there uh, in usability. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, we could increase the performance of uh, some of these deep learning methods if we uh, have a, a smarter uh, optimization strategy uh, and a bit more compute, um, but but still, I, I think it wouldn't solve, uh, it wouldn't bridge this big gap. Thank you. Cool, Emmanuel. Yeah, thanks, Jai, for the very nice presentation. So I, I have a couple of questions and comments too. Uh, so the first one is. Uh, uh, from what you presented, it's kind of obvious that the molecular augmentation like has a lot of impact on the result. And mm -hmm. it for me, it's kind of expected that structural like augmentation like ECFP uh, would perform better than uh, FISCHEM. And I have a question mm -hmm. around like uh, how you define activity cliff uh, based on some form of similarity, but using augmentation like ECFP for that, but then in your your training set, you were still using ECFP for measuring the performance. So yeah. it's kind of like, I feel, I feel like there's maybe some form of bias there, but yeah. just, just a small comment. And uh, my question would be like, have you tried to look at what happened when you use things like um, a, a deep neural network, but using uh, supplementing the documentation with uh, uh, fixed augmentation that you get from uh, ECFP, for example. So, like uh, when you compute your, for a graph network, for example, when you compute your uh, global pooling, you may may add some concatenation or some form of like uh, another way to add the information from the ECFP. And do you think that could maybe be a way to like improve the performance of uh, this kind of model in the context of activity? Yeah. Uh... So first of all, the second point, very fair comment uh, that there might indeed be uh, be some data, uh, some 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 bias uh, in there, um, and then for the uh, the descriptor based methods that that it's obvious that they perform better. Uh, well, you could also uh, look at it from a different perspective. So for example, we know that three D information could play a big role in in a cliff clips. And you have this this WIM descriptor, for example, that um, uh, describes the, the 3D structure of a molecule as well. So maybe that would be a lot better than other uh, approaches, right? So uh, to me, it isn't obvious that these um, ECFPs would also be better 
on clips per se, uh, even though we know that they are better uh, just like overall. Um, and then, then the third comment, um, adding uh, like external information like ECFPs to the deep learning uh, approaches. Um, it's, this could be interesting, but it's also a bit besides the point of deep learning, right? So uh, what you're trying to achieve is that you uh, learn directly from the molecular representation without doing a lot of feature engineering. Because you saw, for example, with, with, uh, with images, uh, back in the days, it was just feature engineering and then some more feature engineering, and then you applied uh, support vector machine, for example, uh, until uh, CNNs came around. And um, at some point, feature engineering just didn't work uh, as well as running directly from the data. And that's something that you also would like to, to achieve over here, right? So you uh, would hope that uh, that these deep learning methods, they could just capture the uh, molecular structure as is without doing a lot of feature uh, uh, engineering. So maybe in the short term, it would, uh, would increase performance uh, probably, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I think it's, uh, it's a bit besides the, the point of using deep learning. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for the great presentation. I have a, I have a very quick question. Um, so did you, did you measure any metrics um, from what's happening inside the neural networks to, that could explain maybe they're not converging as uh, as good as, as one might uh, might expect. Yeah. Uh, so so during trading, yeah, yeah. During trading, we didn't see any uh, weird things going on. Uh, so they all just seem to converge uh, well. Uh, so so okay. maybe I missed something, of course, but uh, it seemed to to be just like. Uh, a normal basically. Okay. Because my question is related to to the graph you showed where you had um, you had the, M the MLP and the SDM at the at the far right, and uh, and you had all the other networks on the other side. And uh, from what I remember, you had some of the, of the deep neural networks you you've shown have uh, have a very very large strength of deviation. Yeah, over here. Yeah. Yes. This yes. One, this right? one. Yeah. So. Um, so maybe I mean when I'm looking at this at this graph, I'm thinking maybe there's something happening with the with the gradient descent. So maybe you have uh, some spikes. Maybe you have something that that might explain yeah. that some networks can go completely off and the other ones can converge really well. And um, so that's that's what my question is about. Actually, it's like uh, do you, yeah. do you see anything weird in the gradient, for example, when you look at this, uh, yeah. for example, the PCL or GAT? As I, I didn't see uh, super weird behavior during training, uh, but then again, uh, we were training like almost 200 uh, neural networks uh, and optimizing each of them, of course. So uh, we've trained a lot of networks, so it, it, there's a chance that I missed some uh, some some weird things going on, but uh, I didn't notice any. Uh, okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot. Cast? Yeah, maybe one last question. Um, I, I forgot how exactly you split your train from test, but could it be that this somehow could, like, could this be considered uh, an out of distribution split? Like, does it somehow maximize dissimilarity in a way? 
yeah so so we of course we try to minimize uh our distribution uh in our splitting approach um so i don't think that that's what's happening here um but but yeah as i mentioned it's pretty difficult to uh separate these clips between train and test because sometimes molecules they have clips with 10 or 20 different molecules right so uh, it, it could still still happen even with with trying uh, your best. Uh, Are there some measures of like? Do you have some some measure of similarity between train and test, or did you not uh, get to that? Or not? No, I didn't. But it, it's it's actually a, a a thing we should do. Actually, I think. Um, so thanks for reminding me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's probably important to to check that. Cool, thanks. Cool. Um, maybe I'll ask one or two more questions before we end this. So in the script that you did, did you consider maybe the difficulty of the task based on whether you have seen some activity cliff in the test uh, or not? Like, so so my, my question is coming from the perspective, if I haven't, I haven't seen any activity cliff in the training set, then it will be hard for me to generalize, right? To reactivity cliff in the test. If I haven't seen yeah. a lot, maybe it'd be easier. So did you consider kind of those settings where you actually maybe vary the percentage of activity cliff that has been naturally set compared to the one you have seen in, in the overall data set? Yeah, so the the uh, activity clips are pretty common in all of our data sets. So there are a few with 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 not that many in them. Uh, and you see a, a bit uh, more variation uh, in these data sets, which is uh, not that uh, that strange, of course. Um, but for example, if we try to change the definition of activity clips we use to make activity clips very extreme, uh, then they become a bit harder to to predict. Uh, I think it's, that's also pretty logical. And if you make them very uh, very soft, basically the definition, then they become easier. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, it, it it does depend on that. Uh, yeah, but I would say that uh, we, we try to use a sensible definition of what an activity clip is, and we also try to have a good distribution um, between the training and test uh, of activity clip compounds. So we, we try to uh, to minimize the effect of that. Okay, I see. Thank you. And what about um, so? Here in this study, you kind of consider all type of activity cliff as being the same, but we know that um, when you measure the, um, the activity of a compound, as you get more senior, there's less noise on the, on the, on the measurement. So in low uh, activity regime, like kind of you just consider splitting the activity cliff based on like kind of the actual activity, initial activity, maybe like. Uh, in low activity regime, the model behaves mm. more or less differently than in high activity regime, right? Yeah, um, so we, we didn't try this. Um, one of the reasons is that uh, we use a 10x difference as a kind of a threshold, right, for our definition of activity clips. So that, would, that automatically reduces the number of activity clips in a very uh, a high, uh, bioactivity region because if you, if you are if you have a model that has a like a hundred uh, nanomolar bioactivity 
uh, then you have to have a cliff molecule that has that 10x. So those are less common. Um, so I would, I would guess no, uh, but uh, we, we haven't checked that explicitly. 